Welcome to this God-inspired message from Shofar Christian Church. Enjoy today's message. May you experience the presence of our Father and may you grow deeper in your relationship with Him. As we remain standing this morning, if you are a member and God has laid a word in your heart, you're welcome to go to Jan Lo, standing there at the back, to go and share your word with him. And as we wait for someone to come and share this last song that we just sang, enthroned, God is enthroned, the highest praises, I'll just take a minute to ask God, Lord, come and search our hearts. David asked God this question, Lord, come and, come and discern my heart. Come and look, come and show me if there's any grievous way inside of me. Why? Because we sometimes fail to see it ourselves. It's difficult to maintain a correct perspective on why we do certain things and what we do. So there where we are, won't you just ask God, Lord, come and, come and show me if there's any grievous ways in me. Come and show me, Lord, if there's something that doesn't proclaim this, that you are enthroned and that you deserve the highest praise. Yes, Lord, thank you, Father, for your goodness. Thank you for your faithfulness, Lord. Thank you that you are so gentle, Father, and kind with us, Lord. As you come and show, Father, and come and reveal, Lord, certain things in our hearts. And even when, Father, we are not quick, Father, to let go of those things, Lord, to repent of those things, to turn away, to maybe reprioritize them, you still have grace with us, Lord. You still have patience with us, Father. And for that we thank you. And we pray, Lord, may you lead us as a congregation and as individuals, Lord, that in what we do and in why we do what we do, that it might be good and pleasing to you, God our Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to invite Hanu to the front for the second time as he and his wife Estelle for the second time does a hot swap, as they would like to call it, with Alex. The little baby boy. Okay, great guys. So the reason Hanu is also here in front this morning is like we said uh, two weeks back that we are going to take today and explain some of the frustrations and clarity regarding 1 Corinthians 11 where we asked the women to submit their words to their husbands. So that's why Hanu is here as well. We're going to do a little bit of a dialogue but he's going to give more of the context. So Hanu, I hand over to you. Good morning, guys. Uh, if I haven't met you or if I don't know you, my name is Hanu. I'm one of the leaders in church, and um, there's a couple of us. You'll see our names and our photos at the back of the Connect board as well. And if you come and join us at Encounter 2, not this coming week, but the week thereafter, you're going to see me and my wife, Estelle. She was on the keys here tonight um, presenting our second encounter there as well. So we like to be involved, let me put it that way. And um, I just want to extend the invitation to you. If you want to be involved somewhere at church, maybe it's not standing in the spotlight, but maybe you know something about sound, you're welcome to come and connect with us or connect at the connect table because um, we can definitely use your gifting in this space. So 
What we're doing this morning is not, I want to say, typical, and we don't do it frequently, but we have done it before. And what we're doing is we're changing the format of how we're delivering the message this morning just slightly because we believe that it's important to reflect uh, different perspectives, let me put it that way. So I'm going to share a bit of my perspective this morning, and Bian is going to share the message and his perspective as well, or the perspective that we ought to have, let me put it that way, from God's Word. What's the topic? Well, if you were here last Sunday or the Sundays before, you might have heard the announcement. Um, so let me give you the context. Last year, in about September, October, we started with this practice where we said, in ministry after worship, that's now the opportunity that we had just now to bring a word if you feel God laying something on your heart. We asked the women that are married to turn to their husbands and to, and we use different words, check the word with your husband, um, get his blessing to come to the front, check in with him, whatever the term was at the time. And then you would follow the normal way. You would go at the back to Jan Lowe and say to him, this is the word of the message that I feel. And he would give you the go ahead or not to come and share that word in front. And from then until now, we've realized that there was some confusion and there's clarification required as to why did we start doing this all of a sudden? Um, and what does it mean? Is there, is there a biblical meaning or an interpretation here? Or is it just one of those things that we decided, like we decide to have coffee or not? And um, exactly what is required? Because there were questions that were raised and that we ran into, especially when it came to the practical things, right? So this morning, what we're going to do is, I'm going to ask Vian, Vian, you started saying it back then. What did you mean and what was your intention, just briefly? And then I'm going to share with you how I experienced it because I think maybe your experience was somewhat similar to mine. Maybe it wasn't, doesn't have to be. But just say, where did the confusion come from? And then I'm going to explain, as one of the leaders in the church, what did we do about it from then until now? So has anything changed? What if we agreed? What do we disagree on, if anything? And then I'm going to hand over back to Vian and ask Vian to share the biblical doctrine that's at play here uh, for us to be able to walk out of here in unity and to have that, um, what's the word, uh, confidence to come and ask more questions if there should be any more questions that you left with after this morning. Cool, so Vian, I think first up, what was your intention? What did you mean? to do or why did you think about this? And I think if you've shared that, then I will share how I experienced it as someone in the chair on a Sunday. So just to quickly explain the intention and the, how can I say, the drive behind this. So from our side, me and myself, the leadership side, is our responsibility to ensure that what gets ministered gets ministered according to God's word. That's, that's the first priority. We want to be faithful to the Word of God. Now, bearing that in mind, we find ourselves in a specific church context, and the people coming to our church come from different church backgrounds. Now, maybe some obviously didn't come from any church background, they weren't involved in any church, any denomination, and they got saved somewhere as someone preached the gospel to them, testified to them, invited them to church, whatever the case might be, and here they are. And what they see is what they see. This is the norm for them, this is how we do certain things. But on the other hand, we have a lot of people coming from traditional church backgrounds, more traditional churches. And the whole concept of ministering that, doesn't, that takes place, that's not the pastor or the domain or whomever, is not seen. 
like the whole use of saying after worship like we just did, hey, if you are a member and God has laid a word in your heart, please come forward and share. That whole thing is a little bit strange. It's not something that they see. And with that in mind, specifically when women minister in church, so not only do, do they not see members ministering, but they don't see women ministering at all. And we'll explain a little bit about the different views in just a moment when we get to the text. So to bring clarification also as to why we do what we do and why they see certain people presenting in the way that they are presenting. To bring clarity to people as to why we do what we do. And to be faithful to God's word in doing that. On the other hand... We live in a, a different church culture context. We are part of the charismatic church movement and we have what we call charismatic chaos. I don't know if you've ever heard that. But that is that anybody gets to share anything as long as they are convinced that it's the Holy Spirit that wants to say something. I don't know if there's someone that maybe comes from a church background like that. And the traditional church background, where maybe there's no ministry that isn't someone that's on staff, someone that comes from a church background like that. And so we see we have a lot of people, we have a lot of different people from a lot of church backgrounds. So to bring clarity regarding why we do what they do so that people also know what it is that we are busy illustrating and that we are faithful to God's word. And to also be more as we can and as we're growing in this aspect to make room for the ministry of the Holy Spirit but to do it according to God's word. That's where this specific principle comes from in 1 Corinthians 11 where it says, and we'll work through that in a moment. If there's not a lot of clarity just now, just wait. We'll bring some clarity in just a moment. That there's still order when it comes to men and women when we gather together for worship, specifically between husband and wife. You are still married when you come to church. And the principles of authority and submission are still valid when you come to church, and specifically when it comes to ministering in church, specifically for women as well. And we'll look at that as we work through this passage of Scripture as well. So... They are permitted to do so, but they should do so in a specific way. And when I wanted to communicate that, there wasn't clarity regarding specifically what it is that the Bible says around it and how that looks like practically and with a lot of what ifs. What if this? What if that? And it's come to my attention and to the leaders that some of us have felt that frustration and not just some of you, but even some of the leaders as well. And this is where I'm going to pass back to Hanu to color in some of that frustrations felt and what us, we as a leadership team has done since then, and then we're going to dive into the scripture. Thank you, Anna. Thanks, Will. Yeah, so maybe just to quickly share my story, guys, um, and, and the reason why I'm doing this is not because you need to take any notes or remember it. It's, it's just to say maybe you or someone you know experienced this, and then we can deal with it, is that the first day Vian announced that the wife must turn to the husband you know, and share her word before she comes forward, well, goes to the back and then comes forward, I didn't really think anything much of it, to be honest. Um, I thought, okay, Vian is doing something, I trust him, um, it's probably going to come out in the sermon, so no massive concern. It's also not like he suddenly made an announcement to say, the Holy Spirit doesn't exist, you know, because then I think there would have been some more caption, but there wasn't any, any issues. And then in the weeks thereafter, we actually started, Estelle and I, we started running into some, some practical uncertainties just because as you maybe saw now me with my boy whilst she's in band. And that's typical, but sometimes we're both here and if he gets difficult and I maybe take him out, Estelle remains in the service. And the one Sunday she felt that she had a word that she wanted to come and share, but now there was uncertainty. Um, Hanu isn't here. What must she do? Must she quickly run out 
chat with me. Um, and I must admit here, because we are leaders, we're very sensitive not to model the wrong thing. Because Vian just said, turn to your husband, and now my wife doesn't do that. Does it mean we're now special or something? So our reaction was just to say, okay, okay we're not going to do anything this Sunday. It's just this one time confusing. It's okay. But then we started speaking with some other people or hearing people speak, and, and they were saying, hey, I'm, I'm confused, man. What if my husband's in here, or how does it exactly work, or can my, must my husband now say yes or no? Um, what, if, what if I don't have time to tell him before Vian says, okay, thank you, sit down? What if it's a really long word? And so we realized we need some clarification. Now, the clarification had to come from leadership, naturally. And I'm going to tell you now briefly what we did as a leadership team and what we landed on. But I just want to use this moment to say the reason why this is confusing is because it falls sort of in the middle of the spectrum of important things or non-important things. And the reason why is on the one side of the spectrum you have very important things. And they are our core doctrines. And this week at Encounter One, we will share our core doctrines. We share that with everyone. So we believe in salvation and the works in the person of the Holy Spirit and in baptism. And if we're misaligned or in uh, disunity there, that's a fundamental problem. We cannot build together. On the other side, there's the form versus function debate that you can have about exactly why are the chairs packed like this? Why are they not packed in a circle? Or why are there so many chairs? Or why do we have coffee? What about chai tea? Or something like that. And really, that there's no mention of that in the Bible. It really, in the context of being saved, does not matter. But we want to function well together as a community. This specific topic is what we call non-core doctrine, meaning it is in the Bible, it is important, and we have a decision to make to say, how are we going to apply it? We can't ignore it. We can't ignore God's word. But it's not core, like baptism, for instance. And so what that means is that the exact behavior or practice of the doctrine is not explained to us in the Bible. We get to decide what that looks like within our context and within our culture. Again, I'll use baptism as an example. If you baptize someone, you take them, you put them under the water and you bring them back up. The Bible does not say which water, does not matter. It can be a bath, swimming pool, a river or a dam. But what you cannot do is say, I've bought a bottle of water, I gave it to the guy, he's now baptized. Because that would be completely missing the point of the principle, right? In this case though, we had to have some discussions. So we came together as a leadership group a couple of Mondays ago, and we said, right, first of all, what's the principle here? What is this doctrine? Do we agree with each other about that? Number one, that it is in the Bible. Number two, that we should do something about it. And we said, yes without a doubt, 100% agreement amongst all the leaders. Then we said, all right, what must we do about it? And there we said, we're not sure. We don't know what the wise thing is to do. And we thought we did a wise thing to say, wives, turn to your husbands before you come forward. But that's created this challenge where we're now saying, yeah, but what if, what if? So we either have to clarify that and continue with that practice or we have to stop the practice until we've clarified it. 
Today we're clarifying it. And what we're going to say from today onwards until we make a further announcement or until you hear it from the front is that as it has always been in this church for you to bring a word to the front of the ministry, so please take note, it's specifically that context. It's not small group. It's not in a different context. It's here at church bringing a word to the front. You have to be a member of this congregation of Shofar Sekunda, and you have to be willing to go to Jan Lowe at the back and submit your word. And he might say, thank you, hold on, don't share yet, or thank you, go to the front. That is the practice that we've had. It's a practice that we continue to have and that we've agreed on we will continue. Might we change it slightly in the future? Yes, we might. But we don't know today what that change really yet looks like. So why uh, Vian is here in terms of the timing that we have now is to say it matters to us to understand the doctrine and the application because this is not the only type of let's call it non-core doctrine that we see in the word, and it matters. And so, although this was a specific topic with a specific issue that played out, there's a general rule and a general application and a general lesson to learn here, and hopefully we're gonna learn that um, today with Vian sharing that. To close off enough from my side, that's why we're doing this, guys. I hope that so far it's already clarified something for you. If you're sitting there and you're saying, I'm not married, so it doesn't matter, or I am married, but I was not confused. Please bear with us, the good part is coming now. It's 100% applicable to you. The part up to now maybe didn't clarify anything for you because you weren't confused, that's okay. If you were confused, I hope you're not. If you still are, we're gonna have a session afterwards or a space afterwards where you come and can come and ask more questions. Please feel free to do that afterwards then. And then in terms of the format, Vian, please come share with us what is this doctrine and why is it important to us who want to love Jesus and follow him, because that's important. And then to you guys, I'll be sitting here and taking notes because I'm also hearing the sermon, but um, I'm not mocking him, okay? So don't worry if I have a funny expression on my face. I get that when I pay attention. Thanks, Vian. Thank you, Anu. Some people have that, you know, different facial expressions when concentrating. And some people, literally, when they try to concentrate, look confused. I don't know if you are that person and you know you are that person. Is there anyone like that? It's not always lucky to have you guys in Bible school. Because you explain something and then you look to this person and you say, okay, maybe I can illustrate it this way. And then they still look the same and then maybe this way. And then they still look the same and like, first time and then, yes. <laughs> Like, your face doesn't know you understand this. Uh, but that's not the point. Um, so just from my side as well, to just take a formal moment and say, for those of you that experienced that confusion because of a lack of clarity, I take responsibility for that, and I sincerely apologize for that confusion. I know it's frustrating, and I know it isn't nice. So I really want to apologize for that if there was some confusion and frustration that you felt. What I should have done is clarified it more fully, the doctrine of it and the application of it, and that is what I want to do today, to take that moment and to clarify this doctrine and the application of it. And then next week we'll continue with the pastoral epistles that we started in the beginning of the year. So we're going to dive into the scripture and work like a through it, and like Anu says, he's going to remain here because perspective matters. You know, we need to get things from different perspectives. Vian laughs, he knows it's a joke, but okay. Let me pray for us and then we jump into this 
topic. Yes, Lord, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your faithfulness, Lord. Thank you that we can be here this morning. Thank you for your perfect will, Lord. Thank you, Jesus, for your perfect example, Father. Specifically, as we'll see again today, Lord, that you call us, Lord, to model after you, Father. As Paul says, Lord, in this first verse, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And may that be our hearts this morning, Father, to imitate you, Father, in the way that is pleasing to you, Father. Thank you for your goodness, Lord. Thank you for your word. And thank you for your church. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, guys, so we're going to work through this. And uh, before we work through this, I want us to agree on a couple of things that's going to help us navigate this text. Not because it is a difficult text. We're going to see as we work through this. The concepts in here, yes, there might be uh, some words that in our context in time, we don't use that often like glory and so forth. So we might be a little bit fuzzy on the meaning of that, but we'll explain that nicely as we work through that. But it's not a difficult text, but it is a sensitive one. And next week, when we get continue with the pastoral epistles, we're going to be at 1 Timothy 2, uh, verse 8 to 15, which is also a sensitive one. It's maybe the two most debated texts in the church in today. And we've decided that we're going to somehow do them one week after the other. Joy, yes, it's going to be fun. But to agree on a couple of things as we work through this is important. Why is this a sensitive topic? It's sensitive because of sin and society because of the causes of sin and because of the culture that we live in. And this is not a calculated guess. This isn't us that took some data between different cultures and times and saw, okay, this is quite an issue. This is something that God specifically says in His Word. Specifically the first time that sin enters into the world. This idea between man and a wife, between submission and authority, there's a breakdown of that when sin enters into the world. The very first thing that God says to the lady in Genesis 3 when he's speaking about the effects of sin, is that yes, she will multiply her pain in childbearing, the very essence of women, the role that mothers have as bringing children into this world, there will be pain in that. But secondly, your desire will be for your husband, but he will rule over you. Some translations translate it, your desire will be contrary to your husband. Why? Because that word is the same word used in Genesis 4 when God says to Cain that sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you. It's not a good desire. It's not a healthy desire. It's not a longing for your husband. No, it's a desire to take charge and to manipulate. It's a desire to lead and to manipulate your husband. And the husband, what's going to happen? He's going to rule over you. So instead of loving leadership, there's going to be a harsh leading. Both should not be so. Both is the result of sin. And then every single time in the New Testament, when the New Testament writers addresses the relationship between husband and wife and how the gospel wants to come and fix the issue, what is addressed? What does it say every single time to the wife? Ephesians 5, Colossians 3, 1 Peter 3. Wives, submit to your husbands. In Ephesians 5 it says, in everything. So even if 1 Corinthians 11 wasn't here, it would still be a good application to have in the church in general. Colossians 3, wives, submit to your husbands. 1 Peter 3, wives, submit to your husbands. This is a good thing. Every single time, this is what the gospel wants to come and reinstate in biblical marriages. What is every time the thing that the men are encouraged to do? Loving leadership. Ephesians 5, husbands, lay down your life for your wife as Christ did for the church. Lead in love. Do not harshly rule over They're supposed to be loving leadership. Colossians 3, husbands, do not be harsh with your wives. It's loving leadership. 1 Peter 3, live with your wives in an understanding way so that your prayers may not be hindered. It affects our relationship with God, by the way. 
Again, loving leadership in an understanding way, bearing my wife in mind as I lead us in love. Every single time, this is what is addressed. This is because of sin. And again, society around us. I like what um, the one guy says. He says, we live in new times, but it's still old demons. The same issues that they faced in Scripture's times, the same issues we are facing now. Just like there was a feminist movement in 1 Corinthians, so there is a feminist movement now. And we can agree on that. There is a feminist movement pushing a certain agenda, and it's distorting and destroying the roles of man and woman. And there's a lot of confusion being caused by that. And Scripture says if we are not careful, Romans 12, that we'll be conformed to the world around us. It shapes us, it affects us in a certain way. That's why this is sensitive. And it says, do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that we might discern what the will of God is. We don't do things according to culture, but we do them according to God's word. That's why it's sensitive, and I think we all can agree on that, amen? And now as we work through the sensitive topic, let's agree on a couple of things so that we can also clarify what we are not busy saying when we are dealing with these things. The first thing to agree on. Both man and woman were equally made in the image of God and it was good and God blessed them. Can we agree on that? That's true. Both of us made in the image of God, it was good and God blessed us. When it comes to salvation, Galatians 3.28, in Christ there is no male, female, slave, free, Greek, Jew. That when it comes to salvation, men and women are equal. When it comes to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, we are equal. When it comes to our, our drawing near to the Father, we are equal. Angels don't come pick men up when we pray and women not, or the other way around. It's equal. In our inheritance in Christ, we are equal. Can we agree on that? Equal in value, equal in salvation, equal in the gifts that the Holy Spirit bestowed on each one as He wants, equal in as we draw near to the Father, equal in our inheritance in Christ Jesus. There's no difference when it comes to that. Can we also agree that men and women were made uniquely different? There is actually a difference between a man and a woman. There is a difference. Amen? So when we say that there are differences concerning roles and how God wants us to function, we agree that it has nothing to do with value. It has nothing to do with bearing the image of God. It has nothing to do with salvation. It has nothing to do with giftings bestowed on us by the Holy Spirit. It has nothing to do by how we draw near to God, and it has nothing to do with our inheritance in Christ. We are still equal. Can we agree on that? Can we also agree that whenever we say that someone has more or less value because of what they can or cannot do, or should or should not do, and we assign value to that, that's a gospel issue. Can we agree on that? Whenever we think we have more value because we can do certain things, or we think we have less value because we can't do certain things, that's an identity issue. That's a gospel thing, because we are rooting our identity not in who we are as sons and daughters of God, but it's what we do. I mean, I don't think I'm more special just because I'm the pastor and you are not. You know, angels don't come pick me up when I pray and you're not. It's just not how it works. It has nothing to do with what we do, but with who we are in Christ Jesus. Amen? We can agree on that. So with that in mind, let's work through this context Bearing in mind that at the heart of that, what the enemy wants to come and destroy is biblical families that leads to the destruction of communities and healthy churches. 
literally the foundation of healthy churches, healthy communities, biblical families. We do that in Encounter 3. For for those of you who have done Encounter 3, you can think about that practical implications. For those of you who haven't, please mark that. It's really important to work through that. But there lies the destruction. Biblical families. If the enemy can come distort that, then a lot of things fall out of place. Why? Because the family is supposed to illustrate something of God and the gospel to the world around us. Biblical families as God intended it. And the enemy wants to come and destroy that and we want to illustrate that beautifully in all that we do. So, let's work through this passage of Scripture. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 2 to 16. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I deliver them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is a husband and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourself. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him, but if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Interesting passage of scripture, and I sense that there's already a couple of questions just by the practicalities of this. Hold fast, we'll work through this together. But the one thing I do want us to note as we just work through this. Was there anything that just as we read through the passage of Scripture that made you feel a little bit uncomfortable? A little bit uneasy? Something that you maybe didn't like or even offended you? Important that we take note of these things before we even start to explain it. Why? Because we should take note of that so that we can take that to God and deal with those things. Amen? We do not bend the Word of God, but we allow the Word of God to bend us. Amen? It should shape us in the way we do life. Now again, very important when we work through this topic, and also maybe some of us have gone read up about this topic, and maybe some of us will go and read up about it. Very important to stay close to the text. Very important to keep the text in front of us the whole time. Because some people will speak to you, or commentators will explain something to you, and as they explain, we move farther away from the text, and we arrive at the conclusion where we go, wow, that can, that can work, that more or less makes sense to me but we are far from the text. And the moment we apply that same interpretation back to the text, we're like, okay, this doesn't work. This breaks down. Very important, in light of that, that the same words mean the same things. And that makes sense. The same words in the same context have the same meaning. It's got to be that way. The same principles in the same text got to have the same meaning. So in light of that, very important to remember when we work through this. Just to start with verse 16, and then we'll jump in. It says here, if anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. And interesting, this is the only time that Paul writes this in the New Testament. He writes to a lot of churches about a lot of different things, sorting out a lot of issues, but this is the only time where he kind of anticipates contention. People are going to feel a little bit unsettled by this. They're going to want to contend 
on this issue. And there's maybe a reason for that, and we'll get to that in just a moment. But he's saying here, if anyone's inclined to be contentious, if you want to argue about this, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. What he's busy saying there is that we don't argue about this. Us and all of the other churches of God, we do this thing, head coverings in our churches. We all do it this way. You are the only people that's not doing it this way at the moment. We all do it this way. Very important to understand this. Now, let's jump into this, bearing a couple of questions in mind. Like I said, for most of us, the issue as I understood it was clarity, and we want to clarify this when it comes to application. So what we want to discern in this context is first, what is the principle? What is the truth that God wants us to see here? Second is practice. How did they practice it? Because we can agree on this as well, that the same biblical truth can be illustrated in different contexts in different ways. For example, there's an appropriate way to greet people, and that differs from culture to culture. Scripture says in Thessalonians that we should greet one another with a holy kiss. Are you, do you do that? Your wife and your husband, maybe. But not everybody. You know, we don't greet one another with a holy kiss. So what, are we being disobedient to Scripture because we are not kissing one another? Are the Italians more biblical than we are? Some of the European nations, some of the Eastern countries, because they still kiss one another? Whereas here, if you kiss the wrong guy, you're going to get in trouble. And if you kiss the right guy, it's going to be awkward, if you get what I'm saying. So if you don't kiss one another, that's a practice. So what does Scripture say, say there? Greet one another with a holy kiss. Greet one another with appropriate affection. Holy, appropriate, kiss, affection. We do that. How does the church do that? Specifically in the West. We side-dog one another. Some of us might even go both hands, you know, if you're really a loving person. But we do the side-dog thing. Appropriate affection. And what we learn through this is that every single biblical practice is not necessarily transferable from the there and then to the here and now, but every biblical practice has a biblical principle that we not only can but should transfer from the there and then to the here and now. There's no way that God says to the church, hey, do something just because the culture does that. That would literally be unbiblical. It says do not conform to the pattern of this world. Don't do stuff just because the world does it. Discern what the will of God is. So what we can do well, if, if the culture has appropriate means of expressing a certain biblical truth, let's do that. So we understand, principle and practice differ. Amen? Just like worship. We have drums and people don't have drums. We have keys and people don't have keys. There's different ways of doing different things, but we're expressing the same thing. Important to remember that. So when it comes to principle and practice, then we also want to ask the question, was it only for the there and then, or is it also for the here and now? Important question to ask. Then, if it is for the here and now, how should it look like? In other words, let's clarify some of that what-ifs that the people had. What if my husband isn't here? What if my husband isn't saved? You know, how should this thing work? We'll get to that as we work through them. So with those things in mind, also bearing the context in mind, that this is speaking about orderliness in worship, specifically when we pray and prophesy. We can't arrive at some modesty principle that is for women in general everywhere. It's not what the scripture is speaking about. Yes, women should be modest, that's other parts of scripture. This is speaking specifically when we come together, specifically when we pray, specifically when we prophesy. To oversimplify maybe prayer and prophecy just for the context sake, prayer and in this case, they are expecting someone to be visible by the congregation. Someone can see what they do. It should be evident to all. They are busy standing there praying. In other words, speaking to God about men. Praying over the congregation. Praying for the congregation. Prophesy, oversimplification, speaking to men about God. 
So whenever that happens, it should happen in a certain way. That's the context. We should stay close to the text and apply it in that specific context. Amen? That's why Anu said ministry after worship. That's where we do this. Important that we apply it at the right place. So with that in mind, let's work through it. I know it's a lot of verses. I'm going to try to be quick and yet concise. You know, to go through, through it in a, in a good way that we all understand. But like Anu said, there is going to be questions afterwards if you still have some. Verse 2 and 3. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I deliver them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is a husband and the head of Christ is God. Now in verse 2 he's saying you are holding fast to the traditions delivered. That means the teachings that he gave them. In Corinthians they mostly don't have doctrinal issues like the other letters. He doesn't speak about a lot of doctrinal things. It is about the application of these doctrinal things, specifically in the worship service, that there's a lot of confusion in the Corinthians church. How does these gifts work? From now till chapter 14, speaks about gifts and the orderliness of worship. He says, you remember me in this. In other words, this is something that they wrote to Paul about. You're remembering me in this. They had a little conflict about this. They had a little contention about this. And so they are writing to Paul, and a lot of this letter is Paul addressing certain concerns that they had. So he's saying, this is a good thing. It's a good thing that you just don't make up your own mind or follow suit with the world. You're actually asking me, hey, how should this work? How should this look in our church gatherings and congregations? Then he says, but I want you to understand that. This is the thing that he wants them to understand. This is the principle. This is the biblical truth. And they're going to see how they do that physically in, in their cultural way of expressing that. But this is the principle. Every man... Uh, Christ, the, the head of every man is Christ. Every man there isn't specifically men. When he addresses a group of people and there's men and women, he uses the masculine. It's men in general, mankind in general. Christ is the head of everybody. We can agree on that. Scripture says that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And specifically, in a functional way, the church. Every single saved believer, Christ is the head of the church and the church is his body. He exercised rule and authority over us as a congregation, and we should willingly submit to his leadership. Amen? Then it says, the head of a wife is a husband. Important, not the head of woman is man. That's not what it's saying. It's not saying that all women should be submissive to all men. It's not what this passage of Scripture is saying. Singular, a man, a woman, your wife. A wife should be submissive to her husband. And like this is not specific to this context. If the whole one, one Corinthians 11 wasn't there, this would still be applicable according to the rest of Scripture. Amen. And then the head of Christ is God. And this is so beautifully explained here that there is no difference in value. Jesus says, I and the Father are one. Jesus is fully God. Yet he willfully submits himself to the leading of the Father. And without that, the gospel isn't possible. He says in Luke that I come to you not on my own authority, but the things that I say to you is what the Father commanded me to say to you. The things that I do is what I see the Father doing. In the same way, when Jesus sends the Holy Spirit, He says the Holy Spirit will not speak on His own authority, but what He hears from us, He will proclaim to you. There's order in the Godhead. There's authority and submission. And it doesn't diminish anyone. The Holy Spirit isn't less God. Jesus isn't less God because there's submission. In fact, this is the very thing that enables our salvation. We all know the beautiful words of Jesus, Luke 22, verse 42, before he gets crucified. Father, if there is any way that it is able for this cup to pass from me, 
let it be so. Nonetheless, not my will, but yours be done. Philippians 2, Jesus did not see equality with God, a thing to be grasped, a thing to cling to, but he humbled himself by taking on the form of a servant and being found in human likeness. He became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God highly exalted him. The willful obedience of Jesus. And in that scripture he says, have the same mind amongst yourself which is yours in Christ. This passage starts with Paul saying, imitate me as I imitate Christ. There's the way that a man imitates Christ and there's a way that a woman imitates Christ. And we're going to look at this. This is what this passage of Christ, this passage is explaining. And again, this needs to mean the same thing in every single one of these instances. It cannot mean something when it says Christ, his head is God. Man, his head is Christ. Wife, your head is your husband. It cannot mean different things. It needs to mean the same thing. Are you with me there? It's why it's in this context. The context of the church. Christ is our head. What does that mean? It means he has authority over us. He's the one that leads. We willfully submit to him. And without that, salvation isn't applied. There's no salvation without willfully submitting to the leadership of God. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. Follow me. That is salvation applied. And when it comes to husband and wife, that is the gospel illustrated. This is a gospel issue. Can you see that? The gospel is enabled through Christ's submission to God. The gospel is applied through our submission to God. And the gospel is illustrated with a wife's submission to her husband. That is what Paul says in Ephesians 5. I want you to understand I'm speaking about a deep mystery that's concerning Christ and the church. Nonetheless, husbands, love your wives. Wives, see that you respect your husbands. This is what we are illustrating, the gospel beauty. And that is the principle. Now for the application. How did they apply the specific truth in their context? Verses 4 to 6. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. And who is his head? The head of every man is Christ. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. Who is her head? Her husband. That's what the, the previous verse just said. Since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is a disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. We'll get to verse 6 in a moment just now. It's okay for a wife in today's age to have short hair. We'll get to that in just a moment. But it says here in verse 4 and verse 5, this is how they did this in their specific context. They covered their hair and the men did not cover their hair. In other words, this sent a clear message. Whenever a wife came to the front with a covering and we don't need to argue about what it was a veil, was it a hat, was it a scarf, doesn't matter, whatever it was. When she stood in front and she covered her hand that way, it sent a clear message to how she related to the leadership of her husband. That she willfully submits to his authority, specifically when it comes to this application in general. Like scripture says, in all things, wife submit to your husband in all things, but specifically here as well. You know, it makes sense when we say we are still married when we come to church. I mean, you know, not, not married for a while. It's like, oh, taking a break from this married thing as we are here at the church and then we'll go on with that leadership and submission thing when we are gone. No, we are still married when we're here. And this sent a clear message to the church. They understood this, that when the wife did that, and it's a willful thing. It's not the husband putting the covering on the wife. She does that. Look at verse 6. For if a wife will not cover her head, she needs to do this. This needs to be a willful submission thing. The word obedience is in the Bible. 
God could have simply used the word obedience. He doesn't. He says submission. Why? There's a difference. It's a heart's attitude. A willful submission to the leading of the husband. But important to remember that the husbands are also in here. What should they do? They should not cover their head. Why? Because then they dishonor their head. That's Christ. What does that mean? It says, men, if you do not lead in a loving way and do so diligently, it doesn't bring honor to Christ. You should lead. You should lead in love and you should do so diligently. Man, lead your wife. And again, we understand this because the greatest problem we may be having in the Christian church today is passive men. Men that don't know how to lead lovingly spiritually, men that don't want to lead loving spiritually, or that when they lead, they lead in a harsh and domineering way, as is the effect of sin. Because that's constantly what Scripture is busy addressing. And it says, men, you need to lead because this glorifies God. And I can understand the frustration, maybe to put it lightly, of how frustrating it must be for a wife to have a husband that doesn't know how to or doesn't want to lead spiritually doesn't want to lead lovingly. I I can understand the frustration there. I can understand how difficult it must be when there's a harsh and unloving leadership. Mustn't be nice. And in the same way where I can stand how demotivating it is for men when they want to lovingly lead but there's no respect and no submission. It's difficult. And this is one of the keys that the singles here, you sitting here maybe thinking to yourself, I'm a single lady, I'm a single man, how does this pertain to me? Choose your husband and wife carefully. Choose your husband and wife carefully because it will affect the way you live and also in your relationship with God. 1 Peter 3 says to the husband, live with your wife in an understanding way so that your prayers may not be hindered. In other words, if you do not want to lead your life in a loving way, I don't want to hear your prayers. That's how serious it is. Husbands, you need to lovingly lead. Wives, you need to willingly submit that leadership. Why? Because this illustrates the gospel to the people around us. It shows Jesus to them, how he lovingly leads the church, laying down his life, and how he willfully submits to the Father, accomplishing our salvation for us. Illustrate the gospel. It's good for children to see. It's good for communities to witness this. And when this doesn't happen, the family structure breaks down. It's not honoring towards God. It's not honoring towards one another. So clearly, seen again, it's not just something that we want to do, but it's something that we want to illustrate. Can we see that in this context? It's not just something that Paul says, you kind of discuss that between yourselves and the rest of the people will just assume this. No, it, it needs to be visible. We want to illustrate gospel, biblical marriages in church. People should see this, evidently. Also, it's not just something that they did that didn't show something inwardly. It's not just the wife putting on the thing and then coming forward and then there's no submission, there's no leadership in the household whatsoever, but just for now I'm doing the thing because that's what needs to be done. No. It's an outward thing, but illustrating the inward portion. We'll get to the practicalities of that just in a moment. What does authority and submission actually look like? Because that's another thing we need to agree on, that it actually has practical implications. It's not just a theoretical thing. It actually influences the way we live. It actually changes the way we relate to one another. Amen. The same with Jesus and the church, the same with Christ and God, and the same with husband and wife. It has practical implications. And then he says here, it is the same if her head was shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. 
But since it is a disgraceful wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. In other words, in the context of the day, that would be to look like a man. And Paul is saying, if you don't want to be, behave ladylike, then also don't look like a lady. And remember, I'm just the speaker. Paul is the DJ. I'm just giving the message. I didn't write it. Okay? But if you want to act like a man, then look like a man as well. It's the same thing that says in verse 13 and 15, so we'll get to that in just a moment. Again, cultural. This is a cultural thing. Can a lady wear short hair today? Yes. Because that's not how we distinguish the difference between man and woman. That's what I did. Why? Because what did all of them wear? Dresses. All of them wear dresses. The men wear dresses, the ladies wear dresses. I'm sure the ladies' dresses looked a little better than the men's dresses. Maybe had a little less holes in the men's ones, but nonetheless, that's what they wore. And so kind of, if you're just walking and people are walking to the front, you would distinguish who's who between how their hair looks. That's a lady, that's a man. And I'm also sure physically maybe as well, but nonetheless, that's how they discern that. So if you want to act like a man, you might as well look like one. Now, that's the principle, that's the practice. Now the question, is it for the here and now, or is it only for the there and then? What's the reason? Verse 7 to 10. We see this words for, that is why, for. Whenever we see this in Scripture, this is reason given. This is why. It's a purpose statement. This is why they do it this way. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But, that's a contrast. There's a difference between a man and a woman. But woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Genesis 1.27, I will make for him a help of it. Made for him. Genesis uh, 2. Oh, Genesis 2.27, sorry. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on it, because of the angels. We'll get to because of the angels in just a moment. I'm sure that as we read through this, some of you are like, wow, I wonder what that means. We'll, we'll get there just now. I spoke to someone after the Afrikaans service and they were like, they waited for that. Because they was like, hmm, that's interesting. I wonder what that means. Because you don't see it often. And just maybe on a clarification issue, angels, the word angelo can mean messengers or angels. So it can refer to human messengers or it can refer to angels. But every time Paul uses this word in 1 Corinthians, it refers to heavenly beings. It refers to, refers to real angels here in the context of what he's busy writing. So first, what does Paul say here? Is this a specific cultural circumstances that dictate that they do a certain thing in a certain way? No. This reason cannot be any farther removed from a specific context. Literally, this is creation. This is when and how God created man and woman. No context, no creation, no sin. This was in the beginning when God created us without sin. And listen to the beauty of this. I don't know if you've ever listened to a sermon on Genesis 1 and 2 and people try to kind of figure out why was she made from the rib. You know, it's not a toe because of this, it's a rib because of this, and it's not a, a hair because of that, but it's a rib. This is the reason why. If you, if you listen to a sermon like that, this is God himself explaining to us Genesis 1 and 2. This is God's interpretation of what happened in Genesis 1 and 2. The Holy Spirit speaking through Paul. Same with 1 Timothy 2 that we'll look at next week. This is God himself interpreting for us Genesis 1 and 2. The reason why I first created Adam and gave him the commandments first, then created Eve from him, and he had to give her the commandments was to establish authority and submission. That's why. 
That's what God was busy doing. That's what he's illustrating to us here. Authority and submission. And again, I have to say this to us. This is when the world was without sin. And like I say, culture and society and sin wants to come and distort the image of this. This is a beautiful thing. For the wife, this is a protective thing. That when my wife stands here in front and she ministers, she does that with a great boldness because she knows that I'm backing her all the way. And that one, when someone has a problem with her, she, they need to come and speak to me. They don't come speak to her. I'm a covering. I'm a protection. You come speak to me. I said, yes, my love. You go and you minister. To maybe put it in another way, Eve sinned first, but Adam was called first. Why? He's the covering. He's the protection. He's the authority. That's how it works. It's not this ugly, domineering thing that wants to keep control. It's a beautiful, protective thing. How God covers the wife through the husband. And that's why it's very important when it comes to this specific context as to what we say and do in the congregation, why the husband's going to be held responsible for that. He's the covering. Why? Because men should take authority and lead in the church. We'll look at that next week. And so when the women come and minister, they do that under the authority of their husband. What if you're single? This text does not speak about single women, so we're not going to put you in here. You do not now need to submit to some other men just for the sake of submission. No, you go to young low as anybody else would. And you share your word. But this is a beautiful thing. The one instance where God actually explains, where God himself again chooses an example to use, he uses Abraham and Sarah about this principle about submission and authority. And it's interesting for me that he chooses Abraham specifically because Abraham twice said that when they go to different countries, he said to Sarah, no, the men are one are going to have you. Tell them you are my sister. And then the kings take her. And then God protects her. And God wants to use that example. Even if the husband does not necessarily make the right decision, God will still protect you if you submit your husband. And listen to this. I don't know if you've ever read that story. But Abraham says, listen here, we are going to go to different people and they are going to think you are beautiful. Man, they are going to want to have you. And then you say to them, you are my sister. How old is Sarah at that moment? She's 99 years old. She's 99 years old. Like, huh? How does that work? How did they age? What happened? I don't know if you're thinking the same thought here. And then God explains, 1 Peter 3, Wives, submit to your husbands, even if some do not obey the word, that they might be one without the word by your conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and jewelry and clothes, but let it be internal. The gentle person, the submissive spirit, the quiet spirit, that in God's sight, is very precious. The women of old used to adorn themselves in this way by submitting to her husband, as Sarah did, by calling him Lord. That's what's beautiful. Ladies, the world wants to come and teach you that, that this beauty is an external thing and you need to come and do all of these weird things. No, this is beauty. This is godly glory. When women behave in that way, that's the inner adoring that doesn't fade. That's beautiful. That a woman who was 99 years old was desired by others because that is what true beauty is supposed to be. It's a beautiful thing. It isn't what the world wants to make it to be. It's a beautiful thing. But again, to clarify here, since man is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man, what does that mean? And again, 
We need to stay close to the text and the same words need to have the same meaning. So you get different camps. You get egalitarianism, complementarianism and patriarchalism. To quickly explain. Patriarchalism means that women are not allowed to do anything in the church and they're not allowed to make a sound. Literally. Why? 1 Corinthians 14, women should be silent in the church. 1 Timothy 2, women should be silent in the church. They take it so literal that a woman is not allowed to play an instrument because then she's making noise in the church. And maybe she's not making a noise, she's, not so, she's making noise of something, and they are not allowed to do that. That's the one side. Some of us might come from backgrounds like that. On the other side, it's egalitarianism. Like I say, because we are equal in value and salvation, we are therefore equal in function as well. Anybody can do anything. And we know that's not how it works. And so when they run into passages like this, they say, Yo, this is a difficult passage. This is a confusing one. We need to do kind of strange things. Why? Because it conflicts with their worldview. Like we see, it's not a difficult passage. And these words, glory, must mean the same thing. So they'll say the following, the egalitarians. But woman is the glory of man. That means that man is incomplete without woman. That makes sense, doesn't it? Okay, let's apply it to the same word in the same verse. Then it would mean that God is incomplete without man. That's not true. God needs nothing from us. He is. He's fully sustainable by himself. The egalitarians will say that, but woman is the glory of man means that she's the appropriate sexual partner for man. Okay, then that must mean that man is the appropriate sexual partner for God. That's not true. What does this glory mean? What is the context speaking of? Speaking about dishonor, honor, and shame. What it means here is that a man ought not to cover his head because when he lovingly leads, it brings honor and glory to God. The same way in which if he doesn't do that, it dishonors God. It dishonors his head. If he does do that, it gives glory and honor to God. Men, you must lovingly lead because this is good and pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. It gives glory unto Jesus as we illustrate his loving leadership to the world. But woman is the glory of man. Nobody keeps glory for themselves. Wife, your job is to glorify your husband, is to honor your husband in the way you act. Always in general, but specifically here as well when it comes to ministering the word in church. She's allowed to do so, she should do so in an appropriate manner. That's what the scripture is busy saying. You should give honor and glory to your husband. Nobody keeps it to themselves. And in other words, when a woman is unwilling to do this, then she shouldn't minister in church. It's also what Paul is busy saying here. We should protect who ministers and what is ministered in church. And in the same way, just to kind of explain that this is the same for everybody, if my house is not in order, 1 Timothy 3, we'll get to that in a couple of weeks' time. If my house is not in order, I'm not allowed to preach. If my children are not submissive, I'm not allowed to preach. If my children are disobedient, I'm not allowed to preach. Do you know that? The elders in church, if their house are not in order, they're not allowed to be elders in church. If their children are not submissive, if their children are disobedient, they're not allowed to be elders in church. It always works this way. There's qualifications and standards for people ministering to God's people. It should be protected. It works the same for all of us. Nobody can do just what they want to just because we think we're gifted enough. It just doesn't work that way. But back to the woman in the glory of man. You should give glory and honor to your husband. Like the one guy asked the question, ladies, if the perspective of people of your husband was only based on what you said of him and how you spoke to him, what would their perception be of him? Would it be a glorious and honorous one? Or would it be, oh, that guy, man, he needs to do his part. 
And obviously I'm not speaking, you know, now you want to sit in counseling and you want to work through a couple of issues and be accountable. Now you're lying on behalf of him because you don't want to make him look bad. That's not what I'm meaning. There's obviously a place to be real, transparent and truthful and deal with issues. But in general, we give honor and glory to one another. That's what the scripture says. That is why, because of the created order, how God made man and woman, that is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. And again, authority. This submission implies authority and submission. And we'll get to the practicalities of it just now. We're almost done. Because of the angels, what does that mean? Because of the holy angels gathering with us. Now, even now, there's angels here participating in worship, looking into the godly order of things, learning the beauty of the gospel through how we do and have relationships with one another. And they are saying, listen guys, this is beautiful and glorious to God when it's done in the right way. We illustrate the gospel not only to human creation, but to angelic creation. That's a beautiful thing. Because of the angels, as they look, as we worship. Okay, now just before we think, okay, man don't, doesn't need women, and man's better than women, Paul writes, verse 11 and 12. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. We need one another. We are created together in the image of God to illustrate together the beauty of the gospel to all of creation and to rule and reign over all of creation. Yes, we have different roles with one another, but we rule together and reign together in creation. We need one another. Amen? We agree on that. It's not a value thing. It's not a salvation thing. It's not because some are better than others. It's just how God intended it to work. Verse 13 to 16, and then we'll get practical. It's the same thing that verse 6 said. Judge for yourself. And again, the egalitarians here, I've, I've watched the thing where the whole point comes down to this. Where the person says, no, Paul now says, oh, you know what, I've written, a, I've written a lot of stuff and I've kind of made a strong statement, but you do whatever you want to. You judge for yourself. This is not what this text means. He's asking a rhetorical question. We all can see that. It's very clear. Again, it's not a difficult text. It's a sensitive one. Judge for yourself. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with the head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you? And again, practically scripture, we use what is clear to define what is unclear. Not what is unclear to define what is clear. People can't use this verse, does not nature itself. And now all of a sudden, the whole text has a different meaning. We can't do that. It's not what it's saying here. Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him. But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory. For a hair is given to her for recovering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. What is Paul saying? Does not nature itself. Don't the way you in your culture and context naturally look and behave like men and women teach you something? Isn't it good and proper for a man to look and behave like a man? And isn't it good and proper for a woman to look and behave like a woman? That's what he's saying. So again, is it proper for a man to wear long hair in today's age? Yes. He can. Why? Because it's not how we define what a man and a woman is. It's not something that's culturally, culturally significant in our day and age. It doesn't send a clear message in that way. Maybe some of you are also thinking now about your um, illustrations in your children's storybook Bible. And you're thinking about the men and you're thinking about, Jesus is long hair. Jesus has long hair in my, in my kid's Bible. Who's thinking about that? And now that I'm saying it, maybe you're thinking about that. What does long mean? For us, obviously, long has a specific meaning. For them, long had a different meaning. So if they had a hair like this, it wouldn't be long. If, Paul had, if Paul's writing long hair, that's not what long means. Long is what long means. There's a difference. 
between that. Just to clarify, because someone asked me that after the Afrikaans service, yok ons kinder bibles for ons. I thought these people did their homework. Why do these people have long hair? So long hair then, long hair now doesn't mean the same thing. But again, does not nature itself, doesn't the natural order of things teach you that it's good and proper for a man to look and behave like a man, and it's good and proper for a woman to look and behave like a woman? That's proper. Okay. So now to quickly get practical. Like I said, the wife should have this symbol of authority on it. What does authority and submission mean practically? How do we relate to one another? You know, let's, let's try to clarify this. Because what it isn't is a theoretical thing that has no practical implications. Paul didn't say, hey, just wear this thing so that people know that you kind of have this feeling of submission towards your husband. No, it's a very practical thing. Jesus and God the Father, there's a willful obedience to the will of the Father. The church to Jesus, there's a willful obedience to the will of Jesus. So authority and submission has to have some form of obedience to it. Are you with me? It cannot mean something else. It needs to mean the same thing in the same context. So in other words, when it comes to a man and a wife turning to one another, and a wife saying, my love, can I go and share this word? Can I go and pray in front of the church? Is the husband allowed to say no? Yes. He's allowed to say no. And he is allowed to say yes. And now to ask the men the question, because again, men tend to spiritual passivity or harsh leadership, are you willing to say no? Do you have the capacity to know scripture, to understand the relationship between you and your wife, how it's going at the moment, and do you have the boldness to say, my love, no, I don't think it's good to share this. I don't think it's good to share this in this way, perhaps. And again, this doesn't mean you test the specific word, like Robin likes to do that because that's something she likes to do. She wants clarity on that and that gives her boldness when she wants to go and share a word with someone. But you don't need to do that specifically. But husbands, are you willing to say yes? Are you willing to say no? Why? Because you're going to have to take responsibility for when you said yes and when you said no. You're going to have to give an account to God one day. If the wife says something that's wrong as well. If sin first, Adam was called first. You're responsible. You're the head. This is how it works. Again, wives, it's a protective thing. It's not a controlling thing. It's a beautiful thing, beautifully illustrated. And the husband takes responsibility for that. Husbands, are you willing? Wives, how would you feel when your husband says no? When your husband says yes? Another thing to maybe clarify, when doesn't a woman need to obey her husband? I mean, that's a good question. Could be part of the what-ifs. She doesn't need to obey her husband when it's directly in contradiction of Scripture. If he asks you to do something or to not to do something that Scripture clearly commands you to do, then you don't need to obey. That makes sense. But what we can do is go on what we feel God's saying to us. We can't use that to override authority and submission in the household. Why? That's manipulation. That's the effects of sin. And we deal with that in counseling a lot of the time. Where the husband wants to lovingly lead and he feels they should put the kids here or they should do this or they should do this in this way. But now the Lord said to the wife, this is the way. What must he do? What must the husband do when the wife says, but God said, we need to do this. Makes it difficult. And again, wives, I'm not saying that you shouldn't tell your husband if you really feel God saying something to you. Your husband needs to consider that. Then he needs to make the choice and he, needs, and he will be kept responsible. My wife comes to me often and says, yes, he's prayed about this. This is what she's feel God saying. Maybe this is some leading towards God, specifically pertaining to the church or to us as a household. And then I consider that. I pray about that. 
Why? Because we are called to lead together. But I'm the one that's going to be responsible at the end. Are you with me? So we cannot override God's principles just with anything we feel God say. When it's clearly in contradiction to Scripture, then, yes, you don't need to obey. You don't need to do that or you don't need to not do that. I mean, your husband can't say you're not allowed to come to church, by the way. God says you come together. Do not neglect the meeting together of the saints. You're allowed to come, even if he says you shouldn't. Another question, what if my husband is not saved? Should I still submit to my husband even if he's unsaved? Because we get the thing that, that the wife sometimes says, okay, but I'm more spiritually mature than my husband. Does that mean I should lead now? No, it has nothing to do with gift, ability. We, we clarified that in the beginning. It's not why this works this way. So if your husband is unsaved, what should you do? 1 Peter 3. Wives, submit to your husband even if some do not obey the word, that they might be one without a word by your conduct. Even if he's unsaved. Submission still needs to be there. He will still need to give an account one day. And again, singles, choose your husband and your wife carefully. It's going to affect a lot of things in life. Important for us to remember this. So even if he's unsaved, there still needs to be submission. You don't need to obey when it's clearly against the word of God, but you need to do that. Okay, last one. What if my husband is not here? What if he's not here? What if he's outside? What if he's working shifts? How does it work? Husbands be intentional in your leading, wives be intentional in your submitting. This is something that we illustrate to the people. So if you know that your husband is going to work shifts and you know that God often uses you to bring word, ask him. Yes, my, my, my husband, I just, want you, I just want to ask you if you're working tonight or tomorrow, whatever the case might be, at church, I've experienced this word from God, can I go and share that? He says yes or he says no. Be intentional about that. Husbands, if you know that you're going there, whatever, be intentional in your leading. Says my wife, I'm going to go there, but if God presses a word in your heart, Feel free to minister. Let's be intentional in our leading. It's not just something that Paul wanted them to assume. We just assume that we are in submission in general and that when, when it happens, there's this principle of submission. No, illustrate that. Okay? If there's more questions, I know some of the leaders are going to be in front. You're welcome to come and ask them questions. After the service, you're also welcome to come and ask me. But I want just to finish for us with these couple of questions that I want us to ask one another. Husbands and wives. You can turn to one another, take five minutes and discuss this. If you're done, you're welcome to go and grab a cup of coffee or welcome to come forward and ask some questions if you do have. Husbands, are you lovingly leading your wife? And a good way to know would be what? To turn to your wife and ask her. And then you sit and you listen. You sit and you listen. And you allow her to speak. And you live with your wife in an understanding way. You don't dismiss her. You don't say no, ach, but. You listen. You allow it to speak. And you take that to God. And when you are doing it right, you glorify God and you thank Him for enabling you to do that. And when it's lacking, you ask God, Lord, may the gospel come and have its way. May I lovingly lead and illustrate to this world how it looks like when Jesus lovingly laid down His life for the church as I love my wife. Wives, are you willingly submitting to your husband? What would be a good way to know? You turn to him. You ask him. And then you allow him to speak. And then you consider what he says. And obviously I know that some conversations might provoke certain things. We have counselors. You're welcome to come and have a coffee with us as we work through these things together. But we need to illustrate the gospel in the way we do things. Wives, are you willingly showing to the world around you how Jesus submitted to the will of the Father, enabling our salvation. Are we busy doing this? Singles, men, are you intentionally leading yourself? If you cannot even lead yourself, how will you lead your wife one day? 
Are you leading those God is entrusting to you in form of discipleship or at work, whatever it might be? Single woman, are you willfully submitting to the leading of the Holy Spirit in all areas of life? Because that will directly transfer to your marriage one day. Let's take five minutes. Let's turn to one another. Let's discuss this. If you're single, you're welcome to go to another single, men, men with men, women with women. Go and discuss this. And then if you're done, welcome to go and grab a coffee. Welcome to come to the front and ask some questions. Love you guys. Enjoy the discussions. And listen well.